or that it wasn't going to be much of a sermon and followed through on that for you and mostly just coughed my way through it and I apologize for that. I'm going to try to, uh, feeling much better this week so we'll see, uh, I think we'll do, we'll get through more pages of the notes between coughs probably this week. So we are continuing this series called Mega Church. And uh, we are months into this thing now. And the reason that we've called it Mega Church is not because we're a mega church. It's not even because we want to be a mega church. It's not because we're, <coughs> there's one, trying to be a mega church. It's because the church is a really, really big deal. Are you convinced yet? I've said that every week since I, every week that I've preached, preached since November, that the church is a really, really big deal. We've been in the book of Acts that explains how the church launched. And what we've said so far is this, and here's the quick review that the church launched over 2,000 years ago not as an institution, not as a building, not as an organization. It launched as a movement. That about 120 people went into the streets of Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago, and they said, God has done something unique among us. (coughs) And right over there, right over there, outside those walls, a man named Jesus was crucified. And right over here, outside these walls, he rose from the dead, and we have seen him with our own eyes. We didn't just hear about it. We didn't just read about it. We saw him, and this didn't happen 100 years ago. It happened like two months ago. And these people flooded the streets, and the Jews in Jerusalem listened to their message, and they embraced it. And within a few weeks, thousands of Jewish people in the very city where these events took place, within the time frame in which these events took place, embraced the idea that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and this is the statement that they camped out on, that he had risen from the dead. In the Greek New Testament, the little word that's translated church for us, if you were to read your Bible and read the New Testament, whenever you run across the word church in the English, is a translation of a Greek word, and we're going to put that word up there, and we introduced this word to you a few weeks ago. It's the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. You remember that? Remember talking about this word, ekklesia? Can you just say that? Can you say that with me? Ekklesia. You're Greek scholars. Literally, the little Greek word ekklesia, it actually means an assembly or a gathering. That's what it means, an assembly or a gathering or a congregation. It's where we kind of easily make this, this jump to congregation. When Jesus launched the church, he launched it, as we're going to see in a few minutes, uh, he launched it as a gathering around one simple idea with a simple mission, with a simple focus. I'm wondering, (coughs) how many of you have ever invited someone to church? Just put your hand, I want to see. How many of you have ever invited someone to church? No. (coughs) Why is that such a difficult invitation to make? It is for all of us. It is for me. It is for you. It is for people who've been going to church for 30 years. Inviting someone to come to my house to watch a ball game or a hockey game is is one thing. You know, come on over. We'll do dessert and coffee. You know, but church, you know, it's just a difficult invitation to make. One of the reasons it's so difficult for so many Christians and has been difficult for many of us is because we're a little bit worried about what our friend will experience when they finally come to church. So here's something I believe to be true. That there are lots of people in our community, there are maybe there are dozens and maybe hundreds of people who would like to connect with God. But the church thing scares them to death. They've tried that, they've been there, they've done it, they grew up in that, it bothers them, it scares them, it's irrelevant to them. And their problem isn't so much with God (coughs) as it is with their experience in the local church. In fact, for some of them, they've been trying for years and years to figure out the God thing. And for one reason or another, they just don't want to do it through the church routine. The truth is, most of us have a story or two about our church experience. Unfortunately, the primary obstacle for a lot of people in their relationship with God is the church. What a tragedy that is. Is my mic working? Okay. The, the interesting thing is, uh, sorry, I just, I could, a lot of times I hear something coming back off the wall back there and I just didn't hear it, so I want to make sure I was on. The interesting thing is that when Jesus was on earth, all these kinds of people that I've just described who tend to shy away from church, they love to be with Jesus. Everywhere he went to teach, the unchurched, the untaught, the doubting, the confused, the bitter, whatever, they flocked to hear Jesus teach. 
And even when he emerged as a religious teacher, he didn't spend time with religious people. The unreligious people, the irreligious people flocked to him and the religious people were offended by him. And it became very evident as we read the Gospels that Jesus didn't really fit with the religious people and the religious people didn't really fit with him. It was the sinners. It was the unchurched people. It was the people like us. Maybe it was the people like we used to be who loved to be with Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. As holy as he was, as righteous as he was, they were comfortable with him. As holy as he was and as righteous as he was, they enjoyed being with him. I think that's kind of cool. And yet today, the average local church is just the opposite. The irreligious, the unbelieving, the doubting, the bitter, the confused people do not like the church. The real tragedy is that the church is supposed to be the body of Christ. The closest people will ever come to being with the physical Christ that you can see and feel and touch and hear, the closest they'll ever get is the church. The church is left here to function as if the church were Jesus himself. That's why the church is referred to in the New Testament as the body of Christ. So why is it then that our friends and my friends and our co-workers and some family members, if they were to show up at your typical church, they wouldn't enjoy it. They wouldn't want to go back. It would make very little positive impact. They would find very little that would help them in terms of connecting them to their Heavenly Father. Why is that? Why is it that the church over the years has developed into something that in no way resembles what we find in the person of Jesus? That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. (coughs) Because I have this concern about Faith Community Fellowship. I'm concerned that we would neglect this one thing that I think can make us effective and makes us effective might even make us a little unusual, I don't know, that we would go the way of the typical established white steeple stained glass New England church. Here's what happens. When a church develops environments that are no longer conducive, attractive, helpful to unchurched people, unchurched people no longer show up. And when they don't show up, I have a sense that God doesn't bother to show up. Because as we're going to see in just a minute, he is as concerned, you might be able to argue that he's more concerned (coughs) about the outsider than the insider, about the lost person than the found person. And the best I can tell, the thing that makes us stand out as a church right now is that we've stayed on track. We've stayed committed to creating and improving and working on environments where those who aren't Sure, those who don't believe, those who have more doubts than they have answers, those who've had a bad experience somewhere or simply don't care, where they're able to come and say, you know, I don't know if I buy into all of that, but that was great. I'm not sure I believe all that, but they put so much energy and creativity into serving my kids and I know my kids are loved. I'm not sure where I'm at with the Bible and the claims of Jesus and all that, but the music wasn't half bad. I'm not sure I'm ready to jump in with both feet, but some of the things those guys had to say might just help me. There was something about that. The coffee wasn't even half bad, and I didn't feel judged, so that what a nice surprise, you know? I might even think about coming back. I'm talking about that thing that attracted unbelieving, irreligious, doubting sinners to Jesus, to his teachings, to his invitation to follow him. They weren't sure what to think. They didn't buy in right away. But there was something so unusual and authentic that even though they were sinners, they weren't put off and made uncomfortable by his righteousness. That's a model for the local church. So if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Acts. No, not the book of Acts, the book of Luke. We've been in the book of Acts for for months now in this series. And it's interesting that uh, we've been there looking at the story of the first century church. And interestingly, the book of Acts is written by Luke, and today we're going to go back to a story in Luke that Jesus told before the birth of the church, and this is in Luke's gospel, chapter 15. Luke 15. It's a very familiar story that's been told lots of different ways to make lots of different points, Uh, but unlike many passages of Scripture, we don't have to go very far to figure it out. You don't have to be wondering, what's the point of this story? Because Jesus made it very clear. And although you've heard this story before, I want you to listen through fresh ears if you can, because we're going to talk about the why behind the what. This is the teaching where Jesus tells three little stories, and the third one being what we know, and even most unchurched people know, as the story of the prodigal son. 
Uh, but to understand the purpose and the point of the story of the prodigal son, we need to understand the, the audience that Jesus was talking to. So let's, let's begin to read here. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. <coughs> now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I love this part. I love to think that I was the kind of Christian that even though I live a good Christian life, that tax collectors and sinners were not put off by the fact that I am a Christian, let alone a pastor. I'd like to think that's true of me. I'm not sure that it is, but that was true of Jesus. So here's Jesus surrounded by tax collectors. People hated tax collectors. You think you hate tax collectors. You have no idea. Okay? Because these tax collectors were basically traitors. They had sold out to Rome, to the occupiers, to make a buck off their own people. So tax collectors and then all the sinners. All right? So there are two different categories somehow. Tax collectors and then all the sinners. Verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the religious people, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know what Jesus did while he was on this earth? He welcomed sinners and he ate with them. And if you're on the outside looking in and you're not sure what you think of the whole Jesus church Bible thing and you're wondering what Jesus would think that you're even here this morning, here's what he would do. He would welcome you. He would probably offer you a cup of coffee and a muffin. And we don't have muffins, but Jesus could, you know, like that, (laughs) offer you a muffin. And do you you know why Jesus hung out with sinners and ate with them? Because they invited him into their homes. Because they were comfortable with him. With the most holy, most righteous person they'd ever met. And even though they were nothing like him, they liked him. And so the religious people are muttering and they're wondering, why is it this guy who claims to come from God, why is this guy who claims to be so righteous won't hang out with religious people? Why is it this person who comes from God spends so much time with ungodly people? What's up with that? That doesn't make any sense. And why are these sinners so comfortable with him? I mean, we're out here preaching righteousness all the time, and they won't give us a time of day, but he shows up and starts teaching some stuff you know, out in a field somewhere or down by the river or out on the beach, and they flock to him. What's up with this? So to answer that question and address this issue, he tells three short stories. The first one goes like this, verse 3. Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And as soon as he asks this question, (coughs) all the men in the crowd are like, oh, yeah, that's right. If you've got 100 sheep and you you lose one, you go after the one. Of course you do. Here's the principle. If something is lost, the lost thing becomes the focus of your attention. Right? Not the things that are safe and secure. When you lose something, that thing becomes the focus of your attention, not the things that are safe and secure. So Jesus says to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you want to know why I'm spending so much time with the tax collectors and all the sinners and all these outcasts and lowlifes? Because they're lost. And we don't spend time with the found when there is one that is lost. And just like you guys admit that you would chase down one lost sheep, so I've come into this world for those who, from the Father's perspective, are lost. Verse 5. And when he finds it, talking about the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. He says, You want to know what gets God excited? It's not all the righteous people who get together to sing songs. That's good. But if you want to know what gets the Father excited, just find one person who doesn't believe, doesn't know what they believe, help them along, lead them to the place where they put their faith in Christ. He says, heaven throws a party over that. And Jesus says, that's why I do everything that I can to relate to, connect to these people who are outside the temple, outside the church, outside relationship with their Father. Then it's really cool. Then he speaks to the women. And this is great because men never address women in a public setting in this culture. And not only does he address the women in his audience, he gives an illustration directed to women. And in this way, he wraps his arm around a group of people who had been disenfranchised by society. And he says this, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Here's the context. Women in that culture were given ten coins by their father. They would make these coins into a headdress and they would wear it as a sign of what their future husband would receive from their father. And if a woman lost one of these coins, she wouldn't go out of the house with nine coins. It just, she wouldn't do it. That would be like scandalous. She wouldn't leave home until all nine were in their place or all 10 were in their place. It'd be very, very embarrassing to her to go out with nine and one obviously missing. Uh, It would be degrading to her father and her family. So he says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 
Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. He says, In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just as she searched and searched and searched, and she, she wouldn't dream of going out of the house without these coins, in the same way, he says, Your Father God is on a search mission for those who are lost, who are not connected with Him relationally. And when He finds that one, that one woman, that one man, that one teenager, that one child, who turns their heart to God and connects with Him through me, He says, there's rejoicing in heaven like you've never seen. Now, Maybe this is uncomfortable for you, like it would have been for Jesus' audience, because there were people in Jesus' audience going, okay, so I'm a coin? I'm a stinky lost sheep? I'm, I'm confused? I don't feel lost, and I don't want to be described as lost? And, and, and Jesus, I've enjoyed the teaching so far, but I'm a little offended that you would consider me lost? Besides that, you know, aren't you from God? Well, yes. Well, here I am. You found me. You know, I'm not lost after all. What's this all about? So Jesus takes it one step further to illustrate the fact that he's not talking about being lost physically or spatially. He's talking about being disconnected relationally. It's not that God doesn't know where we are physically. It's that what God is after is to reconnect relationally in such a way that there's a father-child bond, which is what it's supposed to have been all along. That's what God is searching for. So Jesus tells a story, and even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard the story, because he tells a story about a son who goes to his father, and he says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I mean, I wish you would die, because when you die, I get almost half your stuff. I wish you would just go ahead and die so I can have your stuff. To which everyone in Jesus' audience was appalled, the nerve of such a person. And the father does a strange thing. He says, okay, son, let's pretend I'm dead. I'll go ahead and give you your inheritance right now. I'll play along. Can you imagine someone you know telling this story? Like, yeah, my 17-year-old son came in and said, he told me he hated me, wished I was dead, and said, okay, son, let's pretend like I'm dead. I'm going to divide up the inheritance and give it to you right now. You'd think he was crazy. But the father in Jesus' story, and the point Jesus was making was this, that the father was so committed to connecting with his son relationally, he knew where his son was, he was standing right in front of him, but there was no relationship. And he thought, maybe the only way to regain relationship with my son is to give him almost half my stuff now, to give him his inheritance right now. And if, that's, if there's any possibility that that's what it's going to take, I'll do it. That's how important it is to me to connect with my son. Not this is not instructive. This is not saying this is what you should do if your kid comes and says, I wish you were dead, give me my money. Um, but this is just a story. In the story... The son takes his stuff and says, you know, thanks, Dad, hits the road, goes to the city, gets a big condo, surrounds himself with a bunch of friends who aren't really his friends and parties away all of his money. <coughs> and word gets back, and the father hears about it, and the guy's brother knows about it, and the whole family knows about it, and the whole community knows what he's done with his father's wealth. Then there's a famine in the land, and the son has to go work on a hog farm, which to the Jewish audience was a big deal, and they all groaned when Jesus told that part of the story. Then one day the son realized, this is awful. This is terrible what I've done. And the Bible says that in that moment the son came to his senses and decides to go back to his father. And in his mind he puts together a little speech. You ever been there, done that? You know, you got to come crawling back. And he's working on his speech and it's like, Dad, I'm sorry. I don't even deserve to be your son. I understand that. If I could just be your servant, I'll be happy. It's all I'm asking from you. So the son prepares his speech and begins to make his way back to his father. Verse 20, the story, that's where we're going to pick up the story. Verse 20 of Luke 15. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Why? Because he knew that his son wasn't just back physically. He knew that he was back relationally. And that was his desire all along. And the men in Jesus' audience cringed that a father would still feel compassion for such a son. He says he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I knew where he was physically. I knew all along where he was physically, but relationally we were dead. So they began to celebrate. Now let me just say, if you're here today and you and God, you know, you don't real, aren't real sure where you stand. Let me just say, He would love to have you back. 
there'll be a bigger party in heaven than when you come back than for all of us church people doing the church thing, you know, and all put together. Because you are the focus of his attention. Because he's on a search for you. And when you come back, you won't find angry God who has a list of all the things that you've done wrong. You're going to find forgiving Father God who says, I'm so glad you're back. Now let's have a party. Oh, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. He said, your brother's come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. In other words, dad, all these years I've been right here. I've never been lost. I've been found. All these years, you knew right where I was. All these years, we've been connected. And yet, he says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And Jesus stops in essence says, see, religious people, this is why I spend my time with unreligious people, because they are the primary focus of our Father God. He's on a search for that which is lost. And when you're searching for something that's important to you, you pay little attention to that which is found. And the local church that reflects the heart of the Father is the local church that is mobilized and strategized around this concept. And the local church that forgets that part of the Father's heart becomes a group of people that are just a bunch of searchers who get together and never do any searching. There are a couple ways we could apply this to our church. I'd like to talk to two different groups for just a couple minutes. If you're here today and you're offended by that term lost, that lost thing, that, you know, I don't want to think about I'm lost, you know, how dare you call me lost, two things. Sometimes we're lost and we don't know we're lost. If you drive a car and you've driven much at all outside of your own county, you know that this is true, that sometimes you're lost and you don't know you're lost. But here's what I want you to come away from this morning. If you feel like I'm talking about you, that, you know, I'm the lost sheep, I'm the lost coin, I'm the lost son or daughter, here's what I want you to understand. The fact that God would call you lost reflects the fact that he considers you valuable. The fact that God would call you lost reflects the fact that he considers you valuable. There are things that you own that you don't know exactly where they are because you don't, but, 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 but you don't consider them lost. Your high school diploma, for instance, where is it? Yeah, exactly. You're like, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think it's in the basement. I think it's, I think it's in a box behind uh, another box, inside another box on a shelf in the back of the... No, maybe... I can't put my hand right on it. I don't know where it is. Uh, I'll have to look through some boxes. You lost your high school diploma? No, no, you didn't lose your high school diploma. Uh, You know, it's like, I wouldn't say it's lost. I just don't know where it is. Well, why aren't you searching for it? Well, I don't know. Well, why not? Well, I guess because it's not important to me. Bingo. The things that are lost, the things that you search for, are the things that you consider valuable. The fact that God would say, you know, hey, you're lost, and... He says, I say you're lost because you're valuable to me. The thing determines how much effort you put into the search is the value that you place on the thing that is lost. The more value you place on it, the harder you look for it, and the more we're willing to sacrifice in an effort to find it. And your heavenly father loves you so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son in order to find you. That's how valuable you are. So don't be offended that God would consider you lost. When he says you're lost, he's saying you're valuable to me. So if you're here today, maybe you fall into that category. Just let me say this. If you ever come to the place in in your life where you realize that you're lost, that is, you've tried to fill the void in your life with every kind of thing imaginable, and you either, you know, lost it all, or you came up empty, or you keep it all, and you're still empty. If you ever come to a point where you realize, you know something, I just feel lost. I think there's a God. I hope there's a God. and begin to think I have no idea what he's really like. There seems to be no purpose. I can't make sense of anything. I have a good job, and people think I'm a nice person, but I just feel lost. The good news is, your heavenly father is the father in the story of the prodigal son. 
And he can't wait for you to turn your heart in his direction. And for him, the thought of you connecting or reconnecting with him relationally brings such joy and excitement to him. Now, I think there's an application for those of us who are found. And the challenge is simply this. Have we joined our Heavenly Father in the search? Or are we just joining around the campfire, toasting marshmallows, singing kumbaya, and everybody, you know, hoping everybody gets found? Let's hope people get found. That'd be great. Yay. Imagine having a child lost in the woods. Night falls, a couple hundred people gather to help you search. You stand up under the spotlight and you give a description of your lost child. You know, last time I saw him was such and such a time on such and such a trail. And as soon as you stop talking, all the searchers gather around the fire and talk about what they've just heard. And they make plans and they toast marshmallows and they sing some songs and then they bunk down for the night. And the next morning they wake up and they build the fire back up and they have a nice big breakfast and somebody's got a book about searching and they're all reading it together and discussing the book about searching and some of them are even praying about searching. But nobody's searching. Can you imagine the frustration, the anger you would feel as a parent? That there seems to be no urgency? And I don't know if my illustrations are accurate, but I wonder what God must think on a Sunday morning in America when he looks down and all the would-be searchers have gathered together. But as we leave, nobody is searching. Because it's like, hey, I like being with these people. I like being with the searchers. I used to hang out with people who were lost. I don't even know where they are anymore because I replaced all my lost people with all these searchers. And as searchers, we get together and we love to worship and sing songs and, and hear some teaching that might occasionally stir something in us. Some of us even listen to a podcast and read our Bible and talk about it over coffee. And it's just awesome. But who's doing the searching? I just have the feeling that the groups of searchers that quit searching will eventually experience the absence of the one who's called us to be searchers. If God's chief concern for this time in human history is the lost, and we don't show any interest in partnering with him on the search, why should he show up here? I mean, who cares? We're all going to heaven, you know, and we die. We're in Lake Flynn. We're found. Woo! I believe that when a group of searchers get serious about searching, not only do great things happen in their lives, not only do great things happen in the lives of some lost people, but God is free to show up. And I think as a church, we've been very blessed because we've been intentional. Sometimes we've been better at this than at other times, but we've been pretty intentional (coughs) about creating environments and continually improving environments where people who need to be found feel comfortable. And everything from the look and feel of our physical facility, the music that we play, to the clothes that we wear, to the way we use technology and our approach to ministry to children and families and the language that we use in our teaching, all that is part of it. And over these last couple months, as we've been working on this future plan, the next initiative, this prescription for growth that came out of our consultation weekend with Pastor Buckingham back in the fall and all these conversations we've been having, we feel that as a church, we are healthy. We are on mission. We're moving in the right direction. We're in a good place. We're poised for growth and expanding our influence and our impact on the community in the months and years ahead, and that's all good. But if I have one concern, it would be this. That in our unity and in our enthusiasm and in our positive outlook for the future, in our feeling good about what we do on Sundays and what we do in service to our community and in our healthy financial position and in the high percentage of you who are involved in the life of the church in a significant way, that in light of all the things that God has blessed us with, that we would become so comfortable just hanging out with other found people, hanging out with other people who've been commissioned to be searchers, that we would forget to actually join in the search. And when that happens, we are no longer a blessable church. No matter how big or influential, how rich or how innovative we become. Years ago, in the early days of faith community, we used two simple words to remind us of what it is that God has called each of us to do. It wasn't original with us, but we loved it so much because it's memorable. And some of you have heard me talk about this, maybe more so um, a few years ago or in the first few years of this church. But we're bringing this back. We've been having some conversations. We're bringing this terminology back. And it needs to be at the forefront of the life of our congregation. Because while we as pastors have a responsibility to reach the lost, it's not all on us. 
It's our responsibility as pastors and elders and leaders in the church and as ministry team leaders to create environments where lost people will feel comfortable to present music that's engaging for lost people, to teach in such a way that is helpful even for people who aren't quite sure what they believe, to serve and love children in a way that just blows parents away. That's our responsibility. And all that's great. But in order for all those intentional efforts to have any impact at all, you have to fulfill your responsibility. And the way we say it here, and the way we're going to continue to say it here is simply this. It's invest and invite. Say that with me. Invest and invite. The key to this church remaining blessable, that every individual who calls this church home makes a commitment to invest in the life of at least one unbelieving person outside your family. And sometimes those investments take a long time to pay off, and that's okay. But if we could always be intentional and just carve out enough time and energy to invest in at least one person in your life who's lost, who's living life far from God. If we could just invest a slice of our lives in those kinds of people with the intention of bringing them to a place where they can hear the gospel and begin to understand what God wants for them and how to have a kind of relationship that God wants to have with them. If we would simply do that. I'm not talking about programs and bait and switch and big events or anything like that. I'm talking about in the context of your relationships that you probably already have. And if you don't have those relationships, it's probably time to do less life with all your comfortable churchy Christian friends and get to know some people who don't believe just like you do and uh, who don't see the world just like you do and who are looking for purpose and who are doing life far from God. It's time to connect with them. I'm convinced that an emphasis on invest and invite will do more to keep us on track than just about anything else. And I'm not talking about, you know, go be a nice person. Because you're already a nice person. I'm not talking about be a contributing member of our community. You're already serving in our community. I'm not talking about living a good moral life and avoiding all the big sins. You're already a good moral person. I'm not talking about everywhere you go, wear a Christian t-shirt and polish the Jesus fish on the back of your car. I'm not talking about making sure your radio at work is always on K-Love. I'm talking about when you pray at night, pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness. Pray for doors to open so that you can have and be an influence in this individual's life. Name the person. Know who it is that God's calling you to invest in. With the goal being that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And they would know what it is to have a growing relationship with their Heavenly Father. I'm telling you, if we aren't intentional about this, we will simply be a group of searchers who aren't searching. And we'll miss out on the thing that God is so focused on. Everything we do this morning in church as a congregation, we'll be able to do better in heaven. We'll sing better. We'll worship better. We'll understand God's word better. We'll relate to one another better. Everything will be better. The one thing we won't have an opportunity to do anymore is to search. So here's the challenge. If you're a Christian, if, you, you, if you're a Christian, you have been commissioned as a searcher. You're like, well, it's not really my gift. No, it's not a gift, but it is a calling. It's a commission on every follower of Jesus. So are you searching? Or are you just enjoying hanging around the fire with the would-be searchers? This is very convicting for me. I live in church world. Everybody I know seems to be a Christian. And, but just because I'm a pastor and just because I'm a professional Christian doesn't mean that at like 3 o'clock every afternoon I hit the grocery stores and preach to people and search for people. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm like too busy for new relationships and especially with people who don't believe like I believe. I mean, who's got time for that? And I've got all these searchers to train and organize and to help them. But for me, if we want to be a church where God feels free to show up, we've got to be a place where the lost feel free to participate. That is, if we're going to be a church where God continues to feel free to show up, then we've got to continue to create environments and work on and improve our environments and do so in such a way that the lost feel free to engage. And we've got to invest and invite. It's invest in a relationship. Bring them to a place where they feel comfortable coming with you, somewhere where they'll hear the gospel, somewhere to be around Christians, somewhere to see the body of Christ functioning like the body of Christ, and then maybe walk away and go, well, I don't know if I believe all that. I've got questions. Um, I'm not so sure about that or this or something else, but I enjoyed being with them. I enjoyed what I experienced. That was not offensive. I didn't feel really as out of place as I thought. I didn't feel judged. I felt like I fit in. So we want to do for you what you might have a hard time doing on your own. We want to introduce to your friends and family and coworkers, neighbors 
We want to introduce them to the concepts of Christianity. We're pretty good at that here. We want to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. But we won't do that in so many words every single Sunday. But every, <coughs> every single Sunday, we aim to provide something that is helpful for every listener. And on a regular basis, we would provide an opportunity for your friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors to cross a line of faith and enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We can be good at that. We can be better at that than we are now. But what we aren't good at is getting your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors through the doors of the church building. This isn't like promoting a new movie release. We can't simply launch an advertising campaign and expect that people will show up. That doesn't work. So let's partner together, and let's work hard to do what's difficult for you in the context of some of your relationships, and you do what's impossible for us. The local church that stays organized and motivated around this one simple mission of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ will be a church, a congregation, a gathering, an ecclesia where God feels free to show up and bless. But if we ever lose sight of that, and we means me, means Pastor Bob, means our elders, means our ministry team leaders, it means you. If we ever lose sight of that, if we get too busy and distracted to search, then the chief of all searchers will move on to somewhere else. Would you do something for me? Would you just close your eyes? And I know, I know my whole talk this morning is about creating environments where people are welcomed and feel comfortable and don't feel manipulated and don't feel like they have to do anything weird like close their eyes in a group of people. But if you're comfortable doing that, if you're comfortable enough, would you just go ahead and close your eyes? I want you to bring into focus someone that you know. And for this exercise, I'm going to say someone who's not a family member. Bring into focus someone you know who's lost. They're lost spiritually. They're disconnected from relationship with their Heavenly Father. They may have been a religious person at some point, but right now in terms of them being connected with their Heavenly Father, they're lost. Would you just focus on that person for just a minute? And would you be willing to commit this morning for the rest of this year to invest in this relationship with the goal of inviting them into an environment where they will hear the gospel and be given an opportunity to have begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That might be your home around your kitchen table. It might be a small group or a Bible study. It might be a women's group or a youth group. It might even be here on Sunday morning. But would you do that? Because if you don't, we might as well just pull the plug. But if you do, who knows what God will do in and through you and through this church? Would you be a searcher who's actually searching so that we can be a church of searchers who are searching so that we can partner with our Heavenly Father in searching for those people who are lost? Look up at me for a second. Got a couple guys positioned on both sides of the room. They're going to put a little card in your hand right now. It looks like this. And it says, invest and invite. There's a place there for you to put your name. Somewhere near you, there's a pen. Uh, in those seat pockets near you, there should be some pens. Fill out your name. Today's date, March 1st, 2015. And it says, I commit to invest in relationships and to invite my, fam- my friends, family, coworkers to a church environment in the next six months. And there's a place for you to put three names. That person that you just had in the forefront of your thinking should be number one. Let's make a commitment as a church family that we aren't just going to be a gathering of searchers who sit around and talk about how important it is to search, but that we'll give our lives to investing in relationships, inviting them into the appropriate environments where they'll be challenged to follow Jesus. Just take this card. Let it be a reminder to you. Let's follow through in this commitment. Let's see what the next six months bring. I believe God... Uh, will use you in ways that you have no idea. When we prayed together back in November in the beginning of this series, we prayed for boldness. This is what we're talking about. Praying for boldness is kind of like praying for patience. Sometimes you just got to do something bold in order to get the boldness. For now, just invest in relationship. Let that person kind of be at the, at, the, at the top of, 
of your prayers. Maybe lose a little sleep over this person's eternal soul. While you're thinking about that, I'm going to just play a little music. Maybe one minute to really put some thought into that. You know, you know who needs to be on that list. So we're going to play a little music right now while you finish filling out this card. Then we're going to watch a video. tired of your boring day-to-day life? I know I do. I should say that I did. Then I decided to do something about it. You see, conventional wisdom says that you live your life and then your parents die and they give you whatever they have left over, an inheritance. I'm sorry, that just wasn't good enough for me. So I decided to do something about it, you know? I want my money right now. So one day, I walked right up to my dad, and I said to him, Dad, I want what's coming to me right now. That's what my youngest son said to me. I want what's coming to me right now. All I could think of that moment was, I'd like to give you what's coming to you right now. I brought him into this world, and I can make another one just like him. But he's my son, and I love him. So I gave him his money and told him if he could have a better life on his own without me, so be it. He packed his bags, and the next thing I knew, I was out of there. Kissed this boring place goodbye. I had places to go, people to see. So the first thing I did was, my son got lost. I love him, but he's no Magellan. I heard he had to stop for directions at least four times before he even made it out of our hometown. You know what? No, not four, okay? It was three. And and one of them wasn't even my fault. I, I couldn't understand what the guy was saying. I was just like, okay, thank you. And besides that, The only reason I can't follow directions is because somebody never taught me to follow directions. Don't go there. Okay, look. The point is, I got out of there, and I started to live it up. I mean, I had more friends than I knew what to do with. I was eating like a king. I had the finest clothes, and the ladies. (laughs) What can I say about the ladies? I can say something about the ladies. They were women, but they were not ladies. Okay, okay, you know what? Never mind. The, the thing was, life was good. Until? Until my son's money ran out around the same time a recession hit our country. There, there wasn't any work to be found. I, I mean, I tried. I really tried. But there just weren't jobs. Eventually, I found a job. It wasn't bad. It was a manager's position. It was an associate position at the... Okay, I was a bacon preparation assistant. Which means? I fed pigs. I hated that job. I didn't pay much. I I didn't have enough money for a place to live. There were many days I didn't even have enough money to eat. Sometimes I was so hungry, I would gladly have eaten the disgusting scraps I was feeding the pigs, but I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. So with hunger pains as a constant reminder of how I'd squandered everything my father had given me. I lived in agony day after day after day after day. I'd watch and I'd wait for my son to come home and my heart would ache as only a parent's heart could for his own child. But hear me on this. I never gave up on him. I never gave up on him. I knew that it would happen one day. One day it hit me. One day I realized that 
the lowliest of my father's workers lived better than I did. At least they had a place to live and food to eat. And I didn't have either one of those things. So I wondered, what if he never comes to his senses? What if he lets pride just get in the way? No, no. I will see him again, again and again. These thoughts ran through my head as I began my journey back to my father's house. I knew what I would do. Um, There's no way that I would accept a handout, and, and I couldn't expect him to take me back as his son. So I would ask him to hire me on as a worker. I mean, maybe he would do that, just maybe. Maybe today will be the day that my son will come home. That's what I would say every morning when I'd wake up. Maybe today will be the day that I would see him off in the distance as he makes his way back home. Home. That word means so many things. Comfort, care, security, love, home. I couldn't believe I was just a few hundred yards away from it. It was a beautiful day. I was sitting on my front porch, and that's when I saw him. He stood up out of his chair. He looked in my direction. He squinted his eyes to get a better look at me. And then I began to wonder, what if he doesn't take me back? What if, what if I get to him and he just looks at me and he says, I, I told you so, I told, I told you. you so. Some of you would just roll your eyes every time I mentioned my son. But I knew he would come back. I just knew. I just knew this was a bad idea. I knew I shouldn't have done this, and so I just stopped. He just stood there. I couldn't move. I couldn't just stand there, so he jumped. My dad literally jumped off the porch. I'd never seen him do anything like that before. It was like he was this little kid who was excited about something. And then it hit me. He was excited about me. So you know what I did next? I I ran. ran. My heart was pounding so fast, I just had to get to him. I'd never seen him run so fast. He was running at me with his arms stretched out wide as if to say, Welcome home! Welcome home! That's what I kept shouting to him. But I don't know if he could hear me, so I just kept shouting it over and over. All I wanted to do was just scoop him up in my arms like he was when he was like a little child. And just let him know that everything was going to be okay. And as I got closer to him, I could see tears running down his face. He was crying. Tears of joy. And you know what my son did next? I jumped. I was nervous. I was excited. And so I literally jumped. And you know what my father did? Well, I fell backwards. He's a big boy. (laughs) And then, and then he hugged me. And he embraced me like only a father can. I kept saying over and over again, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't deserve to be called your son. My son is back. Get him some clean clothes. Uh, Let's give him a meal. No, a feast. For my son will no longer live as an orphan. For all my hopes have come true. I guess it was hope. Hope that made me start that journey back home. Hope that got me through all the miles. A hope that my father would take me back and somehow I could be forgiven. Forgiven. It's all forgiven. And I will never bring it up ever again. There is no shame, there is no guilt, for my son was lost, and now he is found.
So lay down 